0: The National Archives podcast series, Disclosure, Documentary Release, and Candour in Government. Presented by Jonathan Sumption, OBE QC. Well, our speaker is a very distinguished individual in at least two fields. Jonathan Sumption QC is one of the uh, greatest... Names at the bar at the moment, a bencher of Inner Temple, called to the bar, I think I'm saying in 1976, 75, 75, and a silk from 1986. Um, And uh, a joint head of chambers at Brick Court Chambers. A great name in the uh, the public law bar and at the commercial bar as well. A governor of the Royal Academy of Music. And, of course, a noted historian, specifically in the Hundred Years' War, his three-volume history of that <coughs> war so far, um, first, first volume coming out in 1991, and the most recent volume but last year. When I myself was a student at the um, Intercourt School of Law and uh, a member of Middle Temple, I heard him deliver a fascinating lecture on the Hundred Years' War at the um, in the great hall at Middle Temple and I was particularly taken with the way that he disavowed any facile uh, comparisons with modern uh, British and European relations, though there were those in the audience who wished him to draw such parallels. (laughs) The mark of a good historian is my personal view um, for what it's worth. That three-volume, as it stands at the moment, History of the Hundred Years' War has been described as a an enterprise on a truly Victorian scale, so it's very appropriate that he should be addressing a, um, the friends of a truly Victorian institution, the ex-public record office, uh, on that subject. And the subject of his lecture, of course, it's been distributed to you all, a truly mouth-watering title, I think you'll agree, Disclosure, Documentary Release, and Candour in Government. Jonathan Consumption, thank you very much.
1: Um, All governments restrict access to their documents to some degree for reasons of state. Uh, As a lawyer, I have had a good deal to do with this process, uh, generally, but not invariably, when representing the government before the courts. Uh, But this is not going to be a lecture uh, about current public controversies or indeed uh, about law, and it certainly isn't going to contain any reminiscences of my own. What I want to do is to address the issue of state secrecy not as a lawyer but as a historian. Uh, There is a difference between the historical and the legal approach to these matters. When questions of state secrecy uh, come before the courts it is usually because the government wishes uh, to prevent the disclosure or publication of information which it regards as harmful to the current functioning of the state. That can involve difficult issues issues of balance between the public interest in the effective functioning of government and some other conflicting constitutional interest. There may be some overriding interest of justice uh, because documents are relevant to current litigation uh, or the public interest in citizens being able to hold governments to account, something which they cannot do without knowing what they have been up to. Uh, In none of these contexts, however, uh, are the courts particularly concerned uh, with the integrity of the historical record. Uh, a century and a half ago, the Victorian sage and future Regis Professor of History at Cambridge, Lord Acton, expressed the view that there was a natural conflict between the interest of historians in recording the past and the interest of s- officials uh, in preserving the confidentiality of their records. There was, he said, a great enmity between the truth of history and reasons of state, between sincere quest and official secrecy. Contemporary historians have generally been content to echo his views on this point. Early disclosure is, of course, essential to their craft. But my purpose this evening is to suggest that while there are undoubtedly some cases where official secrecy is the enemy of historical research, in the longer term they are in fact perfectly complementary. Leaving aside the rather special case of information prejudicial to national security, there are two main reasons why governments might wish to prevent access to their administrative records. One reason, which was once much commoner than it is now, is to protect the historical reputation of the state by withholding disclosure of information that might make people think ill of it. That may involve keeping the historical record or some events secret for decades or even centuries after the participants are dead, in the interests of the disembodied state. The second reason uh, looks not at the ultimate consequence of the decision, uh, but at the process by which it was originally made. It seeks to protect the process of political or administrative decision-making by ensuring that documents recording the making of policy are not put into the public domain until a reasonable time has passed. The object of this is to encourage the frank discussion of issues among decision makers and their advisers, which may be inhibited uh, if uh, the discussion is shortly to be made public. Otherwise, the discussion may not occur at all, or it may occur among a smaller group of people, with damaging consequences for the quality of the decision, or it may occur in a less formal setting, where it will be recorded in wholly anodyne terms or not at all. Now, although there are undoubtedly cases where both considerations apply, it must be obvious that there is a radical difference between these two approaches. The first approach, which is looking to protect the historical reputation of the state, is in reality a form of indirect censorship. It may require the suppression of documents for a very long time, No self-help respecting historian is likely to support this. But the second approach is concerned with the current functions of the state and with the quality and proper recording of decisions. It is likely to be justified for a much shorter period. It may be fundamental to the integrity of the historical record. This is, I think, an area where the concerns of historians and officials largely coincide. The reason is... Uh, that in the long term it is more important to the writing of history that a record should exist and that it should be accurate and complete uh, than that it should be available soon. When Lord Acton condemned official secrecy, he was mainly concerned with secrecy imposed for overtly propagandist reasons. In his day, the most notable practitioner of this kind of censorship was his particular bugbear, the papacy, The Vatican Archive, one of the most impressive collections of administrative documents in Europe, containing documents going back more than a millennium, was completely closed to outside researchers until 1883. Indeed, secrecy was so fundamental to the traditions of the Archive that an inscription carved over the main entrance to the Archive from the Vatican Library renounced the automatic excommunication of any stranger to the papal service who might enter therein. (laughs) This is not, as some people seem to think, an invention of Dan Brown's. (laughs) The reason for the policy was that the popes had for many years regarded the spiritual authority of the Catholic Church as intimately dependent on the historical claim to be the sole authentic voice of a Christian tradition going back to St Peter. Such controversial episodes in the history of the papacy as the reign of the Borgia Pope Alexander VI or the trials of Bruno or Galileo for heresy or the inner history of the Council of Trent were thought to have a potential to undermine the Church's mission. Now that kind of attitude was becoming rare in Acton's time but it was by no means unique and it is not actually extinct today. The will of Frederick the Great of Prussia, who died in 1786 was treated as a classified document on the directions of the German foreign ministry until 1916. Large parts of the central archives of the Italian state, dealing with the unification of Italy and the administration of Cavour in the 1850s, remained closed until well after the First World War. Defending this policy in 1912, the Italian Prime Minister Giolitti observed with disarming frankness that it would not be right to allow our beautiful legends to be undermined by mere historical criticism. (laughs) More recently, access to files covering the Second World War at the Central Archive of the Russian Ministry of Defence at Podolsk outside Moscow was severely curtailed in about 2000 in order to protect the official narrative. In Turkey, it is reported that the Central State Archive, which is part of the Secretariat of the Prime Minister, makes available files on sensitive subjects, such as the Ottoman Empire's dealings with the Armenians, on a highly selective basis. Now, it would be satisfying to record that considerations of this kind had never been an issue in Britain. Satisfying, but not true. (laughs) Uh, The public records have always offered opportunities for political point scoring to which English governments uh, have been occasionally quite as sensitive as 19th century popes. The scientific study of archives as a historical source begins in the 17th century. In England, it was attended by political controversy from the outset. In principle, the archives of the English government were closed to outsiders. Writing in the 1630s, Chief Justice Sir Edward Cook gave it as his opinion in the fourth book of his Institutes that letters and writings concerning matters of state are not fit to be made vulgar. In fact, The records of the main departments of state were so insecurely held in his time that in practice it was quite easy to make them vulgar. (laughs) The parliamentary opposition to the first two Stuart kings included some competent antiquaries and historians such as John Selden, Sir Robert Cotton and Sir Simmons Dews, who saw in the public records a stick with which to beat the king. They scoured the records uh, of the Middle Ages for material to support their case about the autonomy and privileges of Parliament. They went through the accounts of the medieval exchequer in order to demonstrate that earlier kings had been able to do without taxation, uh, unlike Charles I. They produced examples of the English king's defence of English national interests to compare with what they saw uh, as the craven conduct of contemporary ministers. Charles I's decision in 1629 to seize the library of Sir Robert Cotton which included a large number of originals and transcripts from the public records, showed that quite a lot of these attacks hit home. Uh, The English Civil War was followed by a period of relative openness at any rate for those researchers who were willing to brave the problems of physical dispersal, rats, damp, and a complete absence of inventories. Uh, At the beginning of the 18th century, uh, England became the first country in Europe to publish its diplomatic archives. The 20 folio volumes of Reimer's Feudere was originally commissioned by William III's First Minister, Lord Halifax. It published in full many thousands of diplomatic instructions and memoranda, account books, administrative instructions and treaties relating to the conduct of English foreign policy between 1100 and 1654. This was something which no European government had ever done before or indeed afterwards until well into the 19th century. The Feudera is still, to this day, the basic tool of research into the foreign relations of England's medieval kings. Uh, Ironically, the main occasion for the revival of censorship of the archives was the creation in the mid-19th century of the Public Record Office. This event made it necessary for the first time to devise rules uh, governing uh, what could be made available to researchers and what could not. These matters had previously been dealt with wholly informally. For many years after the creation of the Public Record Office, each government department was left to make its own rules about documents of which it was the source. They were often overtly designed to protect the image of the state against criticism. When the Public Record Office opened its doors to readers in 1856, the Foreign Office insisted that nothing could be disclosed which was later than 1628. (laughs) Uh, Among the documents which were restricted in this way were quite a lot which had actually been published by Reimer in his Födera, 120 years before. Uh, In the following year, the closure date was changed to 1760, where it remained until after the First World War, when in 1891, the then master of the Rolls. Uh, who was at that time charged with the uh, administration of the Public Record Office, had the date moved forward to 1830, the Foreign (laughs) Office had the decision reversed within 12 months. (laughs) There was, they said, no sufficient guarantee against the admission to the reading rooms of undesirable persons. Mm -hmm. As a result, the records of English foreign policy after 1760 could be consulted only with the permission of the Secretary of State. Uh, And then on terms that the researcher was required to submit his notes to the Foreign Office for review. They were frequently returned, uh, with extensive sections blocked out in ink to make them illegible. The main result of this policy, as the Oxford historian H. A. L. Fisher pointed out, was that British foreign policy in the century after 1760 was generally studied through the eyes of England's historic rivals, notably France and Germany, whose diplomatic (coughs) archives for this period were for the most part open. At the beginning of the 20th century, even the domestic archives of the period of the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, a hundred years earlier, were regarded as much too sensitive for disclosure. The Prime Minister, then Arthur Balfour, intervened personally in 1902 to veto a proposal to open all documents up to 1815 on the grounds that even after the passage of a century, the disclosure of documents relating to the government of Ireland was full of contentious matter which bears on uh, uh, slumbering uh, though not yet deceased controversies. Others objected to the, that the opening of the archives of this period would undermine relations with France by revealing the scale on which Britain had funded the domestic opposition to its rulers during the Napoleonic and Revolutionary Wars. There is something rather touching about the confidence of British public servants that their undercover operations of an earlier age were still secret in 1902. In fact, by far the best source of information about English undercover operations in France in the Napoleonic Wars is to be found in the files of the French police chief, Joseph Fouché. They had been open to readers in the French National Archives for some time and quite a number of them were in the process of being published by Alphonse Aulard and other French scholars. Uh, It was not until between the wars that the rules were relaxed so as to make possible the serious study of modern English history by researchers in the Public Record Office, uh, even by undesirable persons. (laughs) However, the real landmark in this area was the Public Records Act of 1958. The Act reflected the recommendations of the the Grig Committee, which had reported four years earlier. It removed the right of individual departments to make their own rules and introduced a standard closed period of 50 years, except in the case of documents whose disclosure would be damaging to national security or which contained confidential information about individuals still living. The exceptions uh, had to be considered by the Lord Chancellor's Advisory Council on the Public Records, a statutory body comprising officials, historians, archivists and other experts whose assessments were generally objective, well-informed and followed. The 50-year period was overtly designed to protect the decision-making process, not the historic reputation of the State. It had been proposed by the Grigg Committee because it was thought to represent the maximum duration of a political career. Of course, like any closed period, the 50-year rule was liable to suppress politically embarrassing information as well but that was not the object of the exercise nor in the long term was it its effect there has since 1958 been very little scope for discretionary decisions designed to mould the conclusions of historians or restrict the use that unfriendly persons might make uh, of the public records more recently the whole concept of protecting the decision making process has been changed has been challenged The closure period was reduced to 30 years in 1968 and the last government announced in February of this year that it would legislate for a normal period of closure of 20 years. The 30-year review panel, which had reported on this question in 2009, had recommended 15 years and some of the witnesses who gave evidence before it would have preferred a period as short as five. These proposals Uh, raise, in my view, far more difficult questions than the kind of censorship which used to be the main preoccupation of government departments and their critics. The first point to be made about this is that the early disclosure of documents in the Public Record Office, as I shall persist in calling it, uh, is only part of a much broader problem. It is just one of the ways, and not necessarily the most important, in which confidential exchanges within government may come into the public domain. It is probably less significant than the two main avenues of unofficial disclosure, namely the memoirs of ministers and now civil servants, and the growth of a culture of leaking, fed in part by a growing hostility to the whole notion of secrecy in the public service, and in part by a rejection of hierarchy, which leads individuals to feel that they should follow their own consciences in deciding what they have a right to say and the public to know. These things represent a major change uh, in our political culture, as a single, admittedly remarkable example may demonstrate. During the Second World War, about 12,000 men and women served at one time or another at the Government Code and Cipher School at Bletchley Park most of them young and recently recruited from ordinary peacetime occupations to which they returned in 1945. Several hundred more were cleared to receive the intelligence that Bletchley Park generated. There was no value in keeping the work of Bletchley Park secret for as long as it was. Yet the culture of public affairs, which prevailed at the time, meant that not one of the many individuals involved disclosed the existence of wartime ultra until 1974, when the officer responsible for the distribution of ultra-intelligence before 1945 decided to publish his memoirs. This is a generational thing. I think that this degree of reticence would be quite inconceivable today. Now I have no personal position on the question whether the current belief in disclosure is good or bad for our standards of government and public administration. I very much doubt whether a single answer to that question is even possible. But I think that we do need to be more honest with ourselves about the impact that it will have on the quality of the sources available to future historians writing about the events of our own day. Of course, plenty will be written, but how reliable will it be? Now, I specialise in a period of history, the late Middle Ages, when nobody had any reason to ask this question. Although the use of documentary evidence for writing history was not unheard of in the Middle Ages, official documents are quite often quoted in full in Chronicles, the idea of opening up the archives of the state to outsiders for the purpose of research was simply unheard of. There are, however, some basic points about the nature of historical evidence that are broadly true about all periods. As a general rule, the more self-conscious Uh, a source, a historical record is, the less valuable it is as a source of information. Take, for example, a royal proclamation of the kind which represented the main means by which the Tudor kings communicated with their subjects en masse. It was intended to be read out at the sound of a bell in market squares across the country. It is a highly self-conscious source, deliberately contrived to make an impact on the public, often as much by what it suppressed as by what it declared. As evidence of the government's thinking, its value is limited by its public character and its rhetorical purpose. The confidential memorandum which originally proposed it, or the record of the Privy Council at which it was discussed, are likely to tell us much more, precisely because those were documents that would not be disclosed in the ordinary course. The same point may be made by reference to the archives of diplomatic exchange. The English diplomat, Sir Henry Wooten, who represented Elizabeth I and James I over many years in the courts of Germany and Italy, memorably defined an ambassador as an honourable man sent forth to lie for his country abroad. The ambassador's formal instructions were a public document delivered to the court to which he was accredited uh, as evidence of his authority. They were a self-conscious statement and, as such, almost invariably useless as a historical source. The private instructions of a medieval or renaissance diplomat which told him what he was actually expected to achieve and how is likely to be a far more valuable source for the historian. The deliberations of the council which prepared it will probably be more valuable still. Quite often, the best source for some fact is a document which incidentally records it In the course of fulfilling, in an obscure corner of the administration, some utterly humdrum function, such as an entry in the exchequer records, recording a payment to a diplomatic messenger, a spy for an undercover mission, or a soldier for some unheroic enterprise. The reason for this is that of all government records, accounting documents are probably the least self-conscious. The clerk who writes them is likely to have little interest in the subject matter and none at all in the impact which it may make on outsiders or later historians. I make these points in order to suggest that the prospect of publicity is a major source of bias in governmental documents. The problem about prematurely disclosing them is that the knowledge that this will happen adds a significant and unwelcome element of self-consciousness to their contents. It leads to selective and sometimes tendentious omissions. It encourages a level of generality which omits historically important but politically sensitive detail. It often causes the documents to be written in a way which means much less to outsiders than to those who wrote it. All of this tends to undermine the integrity of the historical record. The Radcliffe committee Reporting in 1976 on the principles which should govern the publication of ministerial memoirs, identified three categories of information that ministers should not be permitted to disclose. The first two categories comprise information whose disclosure would contravene the requirements of national security or damage this country's relationship with other governments. The third category, which is the one germane to my present theme, is both more controversial and more difficult to define. This comprises information whose disclosure would be destructive of confidential relationships within government. Justifying this category in their report, Lord Radcliffe's committee observed as follows. The argument in its favour is quite simple and does not gain by elaboration. Those who are to act together in pursuance of a policy agreed in common do require and expect the observance of confidence as to what they say to each other and unless they can be assured of the maintenance of that confidence, they will not speak easily or frankly among themselves. Opinions, perhaps unpopular, perhaps embarrassing, will be muted or suppressed if they are known to be liable to future disclosure at the whim of some retired colleague. Business which should be discussed by the whole body will tend to be settled by two or three in a corner. The principle that candour in the expressing and recording of opinions depends on confidentiality had never previously been articulated as clearly as it was by the Radcliffe committee. But it was already, in 1976, a principle of some antiquity. To this day, every new Privy councillor swears an oath, the essential features of which can be traced back to the 13th century, in which he swears to keep secret all matters committed and revealed unto you, or that shall be treated of secretly in council. This formula first appears in in a record of 1257. Such total reticence has never, of course, been easy to enforce. As Thomas Carlyle observed in his History of Frederick the Great, men are very porous, weighty secrets oozing out of them like quicksilver through clay jars. (laughs) During the 19th century, English governments had few tools at their disposal for enforcing the confidentiality of the decision-making process, other than persuasion and social pressure. Sometimes this worked, sometimes it did not. After the death of the Prime Minister, George Canning, in 1827, ministers went to considerable lengths, with very little success, to prevent his widow from commissioning a biography based on his personal papers, mainly because they were concerned that it would expose the bitter arguments over Catholic emancipation which had divided recent administrations. Half a century later, The posthumous publication of the Diaries of Charles Greville, in which the diarist had patiently recorded the inner debates and scandals of the political class over the 40 years in which he served as clerk of the Privy Council, was regarded as a profoundly shocking event. Queen Victoria denounced the author's indiscretion, indelicacy, ingratitude, betrayal of confidence, and shameful disloyalty to his sovereign. Obscure pressures on Greville's literary executor and publisher resulted in substantial parts of the diary being cut out of the published version. And when the manuscript was presented to the British Museum in 1895, the trustees were persuaded to direct that it should not be made available to readers. It was not published in full until the 1930s. Now, these challenges to the accepted conventions were relatively rare until after the First World War, when a flood of memoir writers, diarists, and manipulative leakers uh, was met by the first systematic attempts to enforce the confidentiality of the decision-making process. The advent of a Labour government in 1929, which was both bitterly divided and relatively inexperienced, uh, brought many of these issues to a head. After the controversial decision of the Cabinet in August 1931 to reduce unemployment benefit by 10%, uh, the Daily Herald, published on the 24th of August, a complete and accurate account of the discussion in cabinet with the names of ministers who had voted against. This disclosure exposed the divisions of the government and made it impossible for ministers to maintain a united front against the instincts of their own party and the House of Commons. The leak, which had been intended to force the government back onto the path of ideological rectitude, in fact had exactly the opposite effect. The government resigned later that day The conservative-dominated national government endorsed the reductions. Whether the Daily Herald's disclosure was constitutionally desirable may be a more difficult question. The fact that the general election, which followed in November 1931, returned the national government with the largest parliamentary majority ever enjoyed by a British government, may suggest that it served the cause of democratic choice. But for a historian, what ought to matter is the discussion is that the discussion of expenditure cuts around the cabinet table would certainly not have been as open as it was if this leak had been anticipated. The decision would surely have been fixed in advance of the cabinet meeting in the course of private discussions between much smaller groups of crucial ministers. We would therefore know a great deal less about it today than we do. That, at any rate, seems to have been the view of the then cabinet secretary, Sir Maurice Hankey, He inaugurated, after 1931, a number of rules about the retention of papers by ministers, access to sensitive policy documents by non-official persons, and prosecutions in the case of the more egregious breaches. When in 1934, Edgar Lansbury, the son of the then leader of the Labour Party, published a book about his father's career, which quoted extensively from Cabinet papers of the Labour government, He was charged under the Official Secrets Act and fined. Official papers were energetically retrieved uh, by the Cabinet Office from serving and former ministers. Some of them, including Churchill and Lloyd George, were grand enough to resist. Most were not. When Arthur Balfour died in 1930, he left his private papers to his niece, Blanche Dugdale, to enable her to write the official biography. She subsequently gave them to the Library of the British Museum on terms that they were to be available to scholars. However, the Cabinet Office persuaded the trustees of the British Museum to close them, as a result of which they were not available to readers until 1968. It is doubtful whether either the Cabinet Office or the trustees of the museum had any legal right to act as they did. Nevertheless, Henke's principles survived more or less intact until the 1970s, when they began to break down under the pressures very similar to those which had destroyed the previous informal system before 1931. The publication of the first volume of the Crossman Diaries in 1975 was a landmark in this process, not least because it provoked the first judicial decision of the issue. The Labour government of 1964 and to 1970 contained an unusually large number of diarists. However, Crossman was special, because he deliberately set out to challenge the conventions governing the secrecy of government decision-making, of which he strongly disapproved. It is, however, fair to say that his diary includes a fair amount of material uh, to support both sides of this particular argument. On the 26th of January 1967, uh, there was a discussion in Cabinet about ministerial diaries following a report in The Observer that Richard Crossman and Barbara Castle were both writing one. The discussion is recorded in different terms in the official minute in the Public Record Office and in the diaries of several of the participants. The problem discussed was not, of course, the mere keeping of diaries, but the possibility of premature publication. Both Crossman and Castle were reported to have signed contracts with publishers. George Brown, then Foreign Secretary, was concerned about the implications for the openness of discussion in Cabinet and appears to have had substantial support from other ministers. Harold Wilson uh, spoke from a lengthy brief prepared by the cabinet office to the same effect. Tony Benn said that he too was a diarist. What he objected to, he said, was that he had not been approached by a publisher. <laughs> in a However, what mainly exercised ministers around the table was the possibility that Crossman's diary might be published before the next general election. Some pointed out that even if publication was delayed until after the next election, if there was a very narrow Labour or Tory majority followed by another election, uh, and Crossman's diaries came out between the two, it would do immeasurable damage to the fortunes of the Labour Party. Now this incident, like the affair of the Daily Herald in 1931, suggests a more general conclusion about the, base, the place of Cabinet secrecy in our current constitutional arrangements. Uh, the original purpose of cabinet secrecy in the 18th century and early 19th centuries was to support the doctrine of collective ministerial responsibility. Secrecy enabled ministers and their advisers uh, to discuss their differences freely without exposing them to the king, who might otherwise be enabled to pick uh, some of them off against the others. Instead, the king was faced with his ministers' conclusions, apparently endorsed by them en bloc. Clearly, the need to limit monarchical discretion is no longer a relevant factor. But that does not mean that the collective responsibility of ministers is redundant. Its modern function is to enable a government to discuss its differences internally while maintaining a common front uh, against uh, its own party in the House of Commons and the electorate. Whether or not we regard this as a good thing, It seems to me that for as long as parties remain the basis of our political system, it is probably an inevitable thing. The only consequence of constructing our arrangements for disclosure on some different basis would be that the same discussions would occur elsewhere out of the hearing of diarists or official minute takers. Richard Crossman was able to assure his colleagues that the terms of his contract with his publishers would ensure that his diaries were not published until well after a general election if he had told them that extracts might appear at any moment or just before an election campaign, uh, it seems clear that cabinet discussions in his presence would have been limited to matters that were unlikely to be controversial or to expose divisions in the party, while the real discussions would occur in small cabals elsewhere. It is sometimes forgotten that although Lord Widgery refused to grant an injunction against the publication of the Crossman Diaries, He actually accepted the principle of the collective responsibility of ministers and the confidentiality of government decision-making. But his judgment is mainly important for establishing that the confidential character of governmental decision-making was not absolutely enforceable, but only conditionally on the court's assessment of the public interest. The critical factor in Lord Widgery's view was that the first volume of the Crossman Diaries would appear some ten years after the events which it covered. That was, in his view, long enough to serve the relevant public interest. I very much doubt today whether the courts would even require ten years to have passed unless the subject matter fell within the first two of the Radcliffe categories relating to national security or foreign relations, Uh, and perhaps not even then. The effective abolition of class claims to public interest immunity i.e. claims to withhold disclosure of documents because of the principle of disclosing material of that kind rather than because of the sensitivity of its particular content, seems to point in the same direction. In practice, in the last 20 years, Lord Radcliffe's third category, documents tending to undermine relations of confidence within the government, has been disregarded not just by the authors of ministerial and civil service memoirs, but also by the Cabinet Office and the Foreign Office charged with enforcing it. The memoirs of ministers such as Nigel Lawson, Lord Owen and Clare Short, or officials like Sir Christopher Meyer and Dame Stella Rimington, are cases in point. The reluctance of the Cabinet Office to insist on the third of the Radcliffe principles is understandable. The decisions of the courts are at best equivocal. Moreover, injunction or no injunction... The confidential character of a text, once it has been written, is difficult to maintain in an age of international publishing and the Internet. Lance Price's 2005 memoirs of, of Life at Number 10 were substantially altered uh, with his consent at the request of the Cabinet Secretary. But the Daily Mail, to whom he had sold the serialisation rights, subsequently obtained without his authority a copy of the unexpurgated version and published extracts side by side with the final text. Now there is a case which has been made for example by Christopher Meyer and Claire Short that cultural changes have killed off confidential relationships within government anyway. There is also a case which was made by Richard Crossman that even if these relationships subsist, Uh, they are less important than satisfying the legitimate interest of the public in knowing how government works. There is something in both of these points, although perhaps not as much as their authors believed. However, uh, I believe that both points are misguided for a quite different reason, namely that they are self-defeating. They underestimate the desire of officials and ministers to be able to discuss issues confidentially and the likelihood that they will take avoiding action if they cannot continue to do so in any other way. In a revealing passage from his Evidence to the 30-Year Review Panel, Lord Wakeham remarked that when he was in government between 1979 and 1994, he told his officials that they were never to put before him for his signature, a letter which would be embarrassing if it appeared on the front page of The Guardian the next day. Now there are of course two possible interpretations of this interesting instruction, one which I do not for a moment believe is that Lord Wakeham intended never to say anything as a Minister of the Crown which would be unpleasing to readers of the Guardian. The other possible explanation which I am inclined to prefer is that whenever he had something to say which readers of the Guardian would not like, he intended to ensure that it was not recorded in writing. The decline in the standard of government record-keeping over the past 25 years is a phenomenon which has often been remarked by those who are well-placed to judge. It has in recent years been associated with a tendency for critical decisions to be made by small and informally constituted groups of ministers, what has been called SOFA government the tendency emerges very clearly from, for example, the 2004 report of the Butler Committee on the use of intelligence on weapons of mass destruction and the evidence given to the Chancery Division in the railtrack litigation of 2005. Now, I don't want to suggest that fear of leaks or premature disclosure is the only factor at work here, but it seems obvious that it is a significant factor and that the recording of government decision-making is the poorer for it. In preparation for this lecture, I consulted a number of civil servants who had recently retired about what their practices had been. The sample is statistically significant, insignificant, seven. It has also been assembled on a wholly unscientific basis, namely, that all seven were people whom I happened to know well enough to ask the question and expect an honest answer. <laughs> However, they were all civil servants of considerable seniority. With one exception, every one of them admitted to having omitted significant information from internal documents, which in earlier times would have been included, and to having communicated them informally instead so that they would not be recorded in writing. One of them remarked that in his department it had been quite common for politically sensitive matters to be omitted from documentary records and recorded only on marginal notes written on post-it stickers, which could be removed and binned after the right people had seen it. Now, it is a great deal easier to identify these problems than to suggest ways of dealing with them. But I am bound to say that I regard the conclusions of the 30-year review panel as profoundly eccentric. They accepted the third of the Radcliffe categories in principle, They also appear to have accepted the basic rationale of the 30-year rule, namely that documents recording the making of government policy should not be disclosed while those involved were still liable to be in government. But they considered that the period of closure should be reduced from 30 to 15 years for two main reasons. One was that the Freedom of Information Act would result in the disclosure of much of the material anyway without any delay at all, the other was that ministerial careers were getting shorter. The Freedom of Information Act is, in my view, a red herring. If it were relevant, it would suggest that there should be no period of closure at the Public Record Office at all. But it is not relevant because the Freedom of Information Act is subject to extensive exceptions, which include all three of Lord Radcliffe's categories of sensitive information. In particular, Uh, Lord Radcliffe's, in particular, Section 35 exempts information relating to the formulation or development of government policy and ministerial communications, including the particulars, the the proceedings uh, of the Cabinet. Now, as for the suggestion that ministerial careers were getting shorter, that is based on a sample which was heavily weighted by recent, rather untypical experience. The long period of Tory government between 1979 and 1997 and the almost as long period of Labour government, between 1997 and 2010, each had the effect of clearing out the old guard of the opposing party. We cannot assume that long periods of single-party government are going to be the rule in future. We need not resort to extreme examples like Winston Churchill, whose ministerial career spanned 47 years. Just look at the present government. Although the Conservative Party has skipped a generation in its choice of leadership, the present Lord Chancellor first became a minister 31 years ago and attended his first cabinet meeting 25 years ago. The present Foreign Secretary first became a minister 18 years ago and first sat in a cabinet in 1995. At his present age of 49, he can reasonably expect his ministerial, uh, or at least political career, to extend well beyond the 20-year period of of closure which is currently proposed. The period of time during which civil servants can expect to influence policy has certainly not reduced. Indeed, it can be expected to increase now that it has become possible to serve beyond the traditional retiring age of 60. Now, of course, none of this Uh, addresses the problem of leaks or ministerial memoirs. There is not much that can be done about leaks uh, other than to pay more attention to the dissemination of information within the public service. As for ministerial and civil service memoirs, it seems to me that public servants should not be at liberty to decide for themselves to disclose information uh, which they have acquired in their capacity as servants of the state and which the state withholds for considered reasons of public policy. Uh, As the House of Commons Select Committee on Public Administration has pointed out, if one accepts the Radcliffe Principles, there are legally effective ways of giving effect to them uh, in the case of ministerial and public civil service memoirs. Underlying all of these considerations is a basic fact of human nature which it is not realistic to ignore. The natural sensitivity of public figures to the impact of their discussions on outsiders will inevitably influence what they will allow to appear in governmental documents, if these are liable to be released in the course of their careers. Perhaps the last word uh, on this question can be left to Harold Wilson. Uh, During the debate in, in Cabinet in 1967, to which I have already referred, he said... Uh, paraphrasing his words, that he proposed to write his own memoirs three times. There would, he said, be a sober factual account drawing on information in the public domain which he would publish as soon as he had left office. A second, somewhat more candid account would appear after he finally retired from politics. A final version containing the real truth would be left with his papers to be published after his death. So I ask you, which one would you rather read?
0: <laughs> this event was recorded live on the 4th of June, 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright of the National Archives. All rights reserved.